Ingrid Fatel Lee, Brooklyn-based designer and author of Joyful, focuses her work on the way that design affects our health and happiness. As founder of the Aesthetics of Joy and in her role as IDEO Fellow, she empowers people to find more joy in daily life through design. She's been featured in, as an expert on design and joy by outlets such as the New York Times, Wired, and Psychology Today. During our recent Ivy Masterclass, Lee shares with Ivy members that regardless of whether it's overcoming the stresses of daily life or finding the joy in the small things, happiness should always be a top priority as it affects every other aspect of our lives. So I'd like to start talking about joy tonight, but rather than just talk about it, I thought it might be nice to start with a moment of it. So what I'd like you to do is close your eyes just for a moment and see if you can think back to a time in your life that was particularly joyful. See what just comes to mind. Maybe it's your childhood, if that was a time of saying joyful for you, or maybe it was as recent as last week. And see if you can remember a time when you felt true and unfettered joy. It might help to think about a time when you have felt completely free. Or maybe it was a moment when you laughed so far that it hurt. Maybe uh, it was a time when the world felt magical to you. Or maybe there was some sort of simple pleasure that was deeper, more profound. So now that you have that feeling, see if you can just bring that feeling back up to the surface and pay attention to what it feels like. Does it have a particular color, or temperature, or texture, or shape? Does it live in that particular part of your body? We won't do this for much longer, but just see if you can enjoy that feeling for a few more seconds. Okay, I'm going to have you open your eyes. And what I'd love you to do is just turn to your neighbor, um, introduce yourself, and share um, a moment of joy that feels like something you're comfortable sharing. Around us, and all of those things kind of add up to this feeling of 
whether or not we're happy. It's really a conscious appraisal of how we feel about our lives. And sometimes that can make it feel a little bit bleak. Um, so we can ask ourselves, am I happy? And sometimes it's hard to know, right? How part of your life is kicking ass, and another part is sort of thrilling, and you can't really figure out, like, am I truly happy? Enjoy, um, <coughs> I love focusing on it is because it's much smaller and simpler. So I believe that psychologist Tom Joy is as an intense momentary experience of positive emotion. And you can measure that through direct physical expressions. So things like smiling and laughter and a feeling of wanting to jump up and down. It's actually one of the ways that psychologists measure the feeling of joy in a lab um, is through that feeling. Um, when I do workshops on this topic, I often hear people say that they feel light inside. One of the reasons I want to do is sort of pay attention to what it feels like in your body is because happiness, really hard to know what that feels like in the body because it's so sort of um, cognitive. But joy actually does have a feeling. Um, it can feel light, it can feel warm. Um, I've heard people say it feels like bursting or bubbling up. Um, and so recognizing that feeling in yourself, whatever it feels like for you, it's one of the ways to start to connect with that feeling of joy. Um, and I think that this is really important because as a culture, we are, we are obsessed with the pursuit of happiness. It's enshrined in the founding documents of our nation. Um, and yet, in the process, I think we often overlook joy. We overlook these little moments. And that's a shame because these little moments have a surprising power. So a few examples of this. So the first is that joy is contagious. Um, so all of our emotions are contagious. Spread them to each other uh, by our tone of voice, our gestures, um, the, the way that we, our facial expressions, all of those ways that we spread our emotions to others. And joy is particularly contagious. And uh, the effect of this is that being in a state of joy actually makes us more physically attractive to other people. And the way that scientists know this is that um, they created these faces that are sort of computer-generated faces. They look like real faces, but they are actually made by computers. And uh, what they've done is they've taken faces that are supposedly average attractiveness, and then they make them smiling. And then they take faces that are supposedly really good-looking, above average attractiveness, but they're not smiling. And they compare them. They have people rate how attractive these faces are. What they find is that um, people rate the quote, supposedly average looking faces that are smiling as more attractive than supposedly better looking faces. Um, so something happens when we exhibit joy. We actually become more physically attractive to other people. And this makes sense, right? Because if you know that someone's emotions are going to rub off on you, that you're going to feel how they're feeling and how they're displaying their emotions, then you're going to want to be around people who are exhibiting um, positive emotion. Um, and this can actually have uh, business implications. So, um, for example, um, sorry, okay. <laughs> um, so, okay. Um, so, salespeople who uh, <laughs> okay, salespeople who uh, exhibit joy. Um, when salespeople exhibit joy. Um, People are more likely to spend more time browsing in a store. Uh, they give higher customer satisfaction ratings, and they're more likely to return to the store um, for a subsequent visit. 
So all of these things that seem, you know, just seems incidental, how, you know, a brief encounter with someone um, in a shop actually can have really profound effects. Joy also sharpens our minds. So I think we often think of joy as tangential to our work. It's the kind of thing that we reserve for the weekends. Um, it's for our off hours. But in fact, being joyful at work can have really significant effects. So um, when uh, doctors are in a state of joy, uh, they are more likely to come to a correct diagnosis more quickly. And they're less likely to be led astray by um, symptoms that are unrelated to the final diagnosis. Um, joyful business people uh, are, make better decisions, more accurate decisions, and they consider a broader range of scenarios in the process of making a decision. And some research shows that we are up to 12% more productive when we're in a state of joy. So they put people in a lab, they show them otter videos or um, give them little bags of candy. They do all these things to sort of induce a feeling of joy. And then they give them like a really big pile of work to do. And they count up how many <laughs> things that people do. And they actually find that they're 12% more productive when they're in a state of joy. Um, so this is surprising, right? Um, that, you know, these are things that we think uh, don't really matter. Um, we think that joy is sort of separate. We divide um, joy and work often. Um, but in fact, uh, joy can be a factor in our success. Joy also opens us up to new ideas. So one of the theories behind the evolution of positive emotions um, is called broaden and build. And this theory says that um, our negative emotions evolved to narrow our focus, to help us um, deal with immediate threats to our survival. So Let's say, you know, something makes you angry. Like, you can't think about anything else when you're mad, right? It focuses you in. Um, or you hear, like, a noise in the middle of the night. Like, you're not going back to sleep. You're not, like, thinking about other things. You are thinking about that noise until you know what it is. Um, so negative emotions narrow our focus. Um, whereas positive emotions evolve to broaden our focus out and enable us to learn, to grow, to play, um, to uh, connect with others, form relationships, and build resources for the future. Um, so positive emotions are ideal for putting us in a state where we want to take advantage of new opportunities, where we want to try new things and connect with other people. And one of the measures of this is something called cognitive flexibility. So um, when, our, when our cognitive flexibility is high, um, we are better able to um, we're less likely to put things into rigid boxes, into rigid categories and, and stereotypes, and we're more fluid in the way that we think about things. And that's one of the precursors to creativity. And also joy makes us more resilient. Um, so one of the things that little moments of joy um, does is that it helps us recover from the physical effects of stress. So when we are um, feeling stressed out, um, our heart rate increases, our bodies flood with cortisol, um, our, our, uh, our blood pressure rises, all of these things that help us deal with stress. Um, and what joy does, you know, we think sometimes that joy isn't something that we, we put it off when we're in a moment of stress, right? Um, but little moments of joy actually speed our recovery. They bring the heart rate down um, and they help the whole cardiovascular system recover from stress. And that, over the long haul, makes us physically more resilient, but it also makes us more emotionally resilient, better able to withstand sort of um, big negative events in our lives. So for many reasons, 
these small moments of joy that we often overlook have really big effects. Um, and uh, of course, this is you know not something I knew when I first set out to study joy. I mean, I didn't actually set out to study joy at all. I still pointed out I set out to study design. I was studying at Pratt Institute, um, not too far from here, and I was in my first year as a grad student. And I had, um, you know, it was my first year in review. I was really nervous, and I had everything I had made laid out, ready for my critique. And um, a professor said, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And that was not what I was looking for in that moment in time. Um, I think, you know, not knowing all of these things, I really thought that joy was um, a little bit fluffy, a little bit light, um, not substantial. And so, I, you know, I was pretty perplexed when my professor said that. I also really wasn't trying to create joy. And there was something else, too, which is that for most of my life, I had seen joy as this ephemeral, elusive thing, right? This thing that drifts past you. And if you're lucky, you can sort of catch moments of it. But it's not really something you can create, right? It's not something that's predictable in your life. It's... Um, it's, it's unpredictable by its nature. And so I asked my professors, there was a panel of professors, and I asked them, how do things create joy? How do tangible things create this intangible feeling of joy? And they couldn't answer the question. So this sort of sent me off on a journey. And um, it started in the library. Um, I went uh, to the library um, and in particular, tried to focus on the design section, right, to see if anyone in uh, the world of design had tackled this question of how our things make us feel. And I found lots of opinions on this, uh, but no evidence, nothing science-based. It was all intuitive. And that's really how the practice of design has been for centuries, right? It's intuitive. Um, so designers think a lot about emotions, but um, haven't always had the sort of connection to the science. And then I went to the happiness and psychology and uh, self-help section and looked there to see if anyone had studied the connection between our, um, our surroundings and our emotions. And same thing. Nothing really, um, nothing really about things because the world of psychology has historically been a very inward-looking discipline. Um, we look at behaviors, at attitudes, at um, our neurochemistry, right? Um, but we don't really look at uh, what's going on around us. And part of the reason for that is I think we've often been taught that material things are just sort of incidental to our happiness. We're not supposed to care about them. We're not supposed to pay attention to them. So I really wanted to close this gap. And um, so that was 10 years ago. I didn't really expect that this was going to be a 10-year process, um, but it was. And in those 10 years, I learned things that have radically changed the way that I um, approach my happiness, my well-being, and uh, my relationship to my surroundings. So that's what I want to share with you. When I first started this journey, um, after I sort of got out of the library and came up empty-handed, one of the first things I did was um, go out into Rockefeller Center and uh, just talk to people. Just talk to people on their lunch breaks, talk to tourists, um, people passing through about the things that brought them joy. And I just asked them this question. Um, you know, where does joy come from for you? Where, uh, you know, 
what places, what things, what are the um, experiences that give you joy? And over time, I noticed that certain things started to come up again and again and again. There were things like cherry blossoms and bubbles, swimming pools and tree houses, hot air balloons and googly eyes <laughs> and rainbows and rainbow sprinkles. There's something about these things that seemed to cut across lines of age and gender and ethnicity. It wasn't like I was just hearing them from uh, a few people or one kind of group of people. They seemed to be joyful for nearly everyone. They were universally joyful. And when I saw them all together, it gave me this really hopeful feeling. And I think this was true then and it's true now that the world we live in often seems invested in reminding us of our differences. We learn that we're introverts or extroverts, right-brained or left-brained. Um, we learn that we are um, Gryffindor or Hufflepuff. <laughs> and that somehow these things, um, you know, are, are deep. Uh, these differences are deep. And I think what happens over time is that uh, while these understanding these differences can be really helpful, it's helpful to understand what makes us unique and uh, understand our own personalities better. But at the same time, um, I think it can sometimes make us feel so different, like our differences are so big that we can't overcome them. And so I think there's a real comfort and a real delight in knowing that there's a piece of each of us that finds joy in the same things. That these maybe silly little things, actually, we all have this um, attraction to them underneath all of it. And, um, you know, this is actually something that didn't even make it into my book. It's so recent, this piece of research. But there's research uh, just out that shows that um, when we are aware of things that are sort of universal, things that the, the oneness of all humans um, or all beings, when we are exposed to information that reminds us of that, we're more likely to be compassionate to and helpful to people we don't even know, right? So there's something that happens when we acknowledge this like basic universality um, that brings out our better nature. And so that was a really comforting realization to me. Um, but at the same time, I, as a designer, felt like this was useful, but um, not, uh, not enough. What I needed to understand was why these things are so joyful. And uh, so I had pictures of them up on my studio wall. It was like analog Pinterest, like well before Pinterest existed. And I would come into my studio every day and I would try to make sense of this, try to understand what is it about these things that makes them so joyful. And then one day something just clicked. I started to notice all these patterns. So round things is one of the things that I noticed. All these round things. Um, if you look at childhood, all of the objects of childhood are round. Bubbles, balloons, balls, merry-go-rounds, hula hoops, um, carousels, they're all round. And even children themselves are round. 
right? They're like, now they're versions of us. And there's really good reasons for that. That's not an accident, you know? They have a higher percentage of body fat. Um, so they have these rounder faces, big round eyes, round features, and that's what makes them so cute. Um, so, you know, that's something I discovered down the track. But uh, So there's something about round, roundness. Also pops of bright color. Everywhere you look, when you see joy, you often see, um, you know, these pops of bright color. And if you imagine a festival that you've been to, um, and you try to imagine the decorations in, like, black and gray, just, like, fade them out in your mind, something gets lost, right? Everywhere around the world, we celebrate in color. Um, so there's something about color, bright color. Um, symmetrical shapes and repeating patterns. A sense, of, a sense of abundance and um, multiplicity. Good. Okay. Sense of abundance and multiplicity, um, like the bananas on Phil's jacket. Um, so when you multiply something, it becomes more joyful. Um, a sense of lightness and elevation. When I looked at it this way, I realized that, yes, the feeling of joy is intangible and elusive. But we can actually access it through tangible physical attributes, or what designers call aesthetics. Um, so these things are like triggers of the feeling of joy within us that exist in the outside world. There's some relationship there. And that word aesthetics is often, um, it often has lofty connotations, right? Um, it's associated with uh, art or with beauty. And I think that can make it feel a little bit remote sometimes. But in fact, the root of the word is the same as the Greek word asthenome, which means I feel, I sense, I perceive. So at root, aesthetics are just sensations. And what these patterns were telling me is that joy begins with the senses. And so I started calling them aesthetics of joy, the sensations of joy. I gave them names um, that related to the kind of joy that they brought out. And I started to notice other ones. Um, so, for example, freedom. Um, that feeling you get when you see a big, wide-open field and you just want to run through it with your arms outstretched. Um, the feeling we get from nature and wildness and open space. Magic. Magic is the feeling we get, um, the feeling of joy we get from things that are a little bit, um, uh, you can't quite pin them down. So uh, things like the light shattered through a prism or uh, the aurora borealis, the northern lights, the shimmering of those, or the way that fireflies pulse in the darkness. Surprise. Surprise is the aesthetic of contrast and whimsy and the unexpected. Um, celebration. Celebration is what happens when, in a moment of joy, our bodies burst open. I mentioned that some people feel joy as a bursting feeling, right? And um, that's very common because it feels like our joy is, in a moment of celebration, of social joy, our joy becomes so big it feels like it can't be contained by our bodies, like these dancing tube men. Um, and, uh, and so we feel joy almost bursting out of us. Um, and that uh, we find that in other bursting shapes, things like uh, the burst of fireworks, or the pop of a champagne cork, or even just radiating shapes of things like chandeliers. And lastly, renewal. 
um, which is the aesthetic of blossoming and growth and potential and change. So all in all, I identified 10 of these aesthetics of joy. And this became kind of like a palette for noticing joy in the world around me. And in the wake of this discovery, something happened. I found that as I walked around, I started noticing little moments of joy everywhere I went. Um, it was like I felt like I had had, I found like a secret decoder ring for joy. Um, and uh, now that I knew what it looked like, I could see it everywhere I went. I was noticing all these little moments of joy um, that were hidden in plain sight. And over time, I started calling this joy spotting um, because, uh, you know, that's really what it was. And it became almost like a mindfulness practice. And over time, people started to do it with me. Uh, we put a hashtag on it because um, that's a way to sort of share in that together. And it's actually really if you're having a bad day. That's a, a good hashtag to go look at to lift your spirits because all it is is people just like noticing the joy um, that happens to be in their immediate surroundings. And I think that at root, what it's really about is recognizing that we often move through the world around us. I mean, like I can literally get into the subway with a book, with like my nose in a book, navigate the stairs without even thinking about it, get on the train and like get off the train. Like we are so, we're so disconnected from our surroundings on a regular basis. And this is really just about tuning back in to all of the little um, joyous surprises that exist in our midst. So this was great. I'm joy spotting and this feels like fun and, you know, I'm noticing joy everywhere I go. And I started a blog and I'm sort of blogging about this. And then um, I start to notice something else, which is that if these are the things that bring us joy, then why is it that so many of the places in our immediate surroundings look like this right why do we go to work here why why do we send our kids to schools that look like this and many of us went to schools that look like this why do our cities look like this and as I started to notice these places I realized that this is actually most extreme for the people who have no choice about where they get to be in the world. So nursing homes, hospitals. I don't know if anyone's been to a hospital lately, but like this is supposed to be healing. Uh, homeless shelters, housing projects. How did we end up in a world that looks like this? We all start out joyful. You watch kids, this is obvious, right? You don't need to teach a kid how to be joyful. For kids, the worlds of play and magic just swirl with everyday life. And anything, almost anything can be an opportunity for joy. But as we get older, being colorful, being exuberant, being silly, these things start to open us up to judgment. Adults who exhibit their joy, who wear bright colors, right? Wear bright colors, um, 
who, uh, you know, act in silly or playful ways are often dismissed as childish or self-indulgent or superficial or um, frivolous, not serious. And so over time, what happens is we start to hold ourselves back from joy. And we reach a point at which I think we don't even realize we've lost it. And, you know, we separate work from play. Like those are two separate things. And in the U.S., we don't even take all of our paid vacation days. So like our joy days, <laughs> we do not use them. And what ha you know, I think what's really important to recognize is that this is not a, this is not an accident. This is not just a thing that is in our minds. This is a deep cultural bias. So Grota, in his Theory of Colors in 1810, wrote, Savage nations, uneducated people, and children typically prefer vivid colors, whereas people of refinement avoid them in their dress and the objects around them. So color, one of the most obvious aesthetics of joy, one of the most obvious signals of joy, um, is being equated to being primitive, to being um, unsophisticated, immature, uh, and um, and so, of course, we wouldn't want to be associated with that. So the, those markers of joy have sort of been colored with a, a very clear type of judgment. And then I think, you know, from a design history lens, nothing did more to deepen this than modernism. The advent of modernism, which, you know, we sort of take to be the aesthetic of sophistication. That's sort of like the default aesthetic of sophistication um, in our culture. But modernism was really based on um, this, you know, sort of originated with this lecture by Adolf Loos, where he uh, it was called Ornament and Crime, where he's basically equating all of these decorative traditions many of which were practiced by indigenous cultures and women um, and equated them with sort of like loose morality, right? It's like morally weak to indulge in decoration and it's um, morally elevated uh, to be restrained, to hold yourself back. And so what happened is that in the built environment, we started to move joy to the edges, not only of our lives, but also our world. Um, so, you know, joy lives in amusement parks, on beaches, and resorts, and playgrounds, um, and that is really where joy gets to live. And the rest of the world was left to look like this. So after, you know, after sort of coming to this realization, as a designer, of course, um, the impulse is always to try to understand how to fix this or how to address this. And so one of the things that I did was go out and try to find others um, who were doing that. And one of the places this led me was to the work of an artist-poet couple uh, named Arakawa and Gins. And um, they believed that these kinds of environments were literally killing us. And so what they set out to do was create an apartment building that they believed would reverse aging. So this is that apartment building. <laughs> This is a real place. Um, it is just outside of Tokyo. Um, and uh, it's, it's, I spent a night there. Um, and uh, one of the first things you'll notice is that um, the floor, I don't know if you can see this from this photo, um, but the floor isn't level, right? So the floor slopes. It sort of like undulates like a sand dune. 
And um, there are poles everywhere to sort of help you get your balance. Um, the rooms are all different shapes. There's a sphere, um, there's a cylinder, and um, there is actually one cube room with a flat floor, um, which was a concession to the fact that they realized you needed to sleep. Um, so there is one room that you can actually sleep in. Um, and uh, one of my favorite things about this apartment is that um, that's this, this cylinder um, here, this bathroom, uh, you can see um, that the floor is round. Uh, so what that means is that when you are brushing your teeth, um, you have to hold on to the side of the sink um, to uh, keep from sliding backwards away from it. Um, so it's a it's an interesting experience. Um, so this seems a little kooky, uh, but underneath it was um, a maybe more uh, grounded theory. So our Collingans believe that we don't have just five senses, that we have thousands of senses. And that is, of course, hyperbole, um, like many of the things they uh, were fond of saying. They're conceptual artists, after all. But um, they, but we scientists believe that we actually do have more than just five senses. And that five senses is really a radical oversimplification of the way that our bodies detect and interact with the world. So... Um, for example, the sense that we think of as touch actually comes from four different receptors in our skin. So there's pain, there's pressure, there's temperature, and there's itch. Itch is its own thing, just so you know. Um, so all of these are separate senses, but they've sort of been conflated into one thing. Um, we have stretch sensors in our bellies that tell us when we're full. Um, so that's another sense. Uh, we have senses of proprioception and balance. And they believe that like a muscle, like not using a muscle, uh, if, if you don't use a muscle, it atrophies, right? Um, and you become less able to use it. They sort of felt the same way, that the connection between the brain and the senses is also like a muscle. And if you don't stimulate it, um, you end up uh, with sort of like an atrophied um, engagement with the world. And that sort of could contribute to aging. Now, like whether that's true, you know, certainly hasn't been borne out um, by research yet. But um, there are now some interesting uses of sensory therapy um, for various kinds of disorders. So for dementia, for example, in the Netherlands, there's a therapy called Snowslin, uh, which research is sort of ongoing around. Um, it's also being used now for traumatic brain injury. And um, it really involves um, being in an environment with a rich set of diverse sensations. Like if you look at these rooms, um, they look kind of like, uh, like, drug dens from the 70s, you know, they're like psychedelic, they have like giant lava lamps and like they're a little kooky, um, but the whole idea is to actually like sort of um, stimulate the, the brain through a connection with the senses and they do, you know, in studies show some relief of symptoms of cognitive decline associated with dementia and some of the symptoms of traumatic brain injury. So um, very far out example, but actually some sort of um, promising ideas. Of course, this isn't for everyone's way of living. Um, and so, uh, you know, this brings up the question, how do we actually bring joy back to the center of our world? Uh, so this question led me to um, another place, uh, to the city of Tirana, Albania. Um, and this was um, just after the fall of communism, uh, or it was actually 10 years after the fall of communism, just after the election of a new mayor. Um, his name was Eddie Rama. And uh, Eddie Rama 
took over as mayor of Tirana in a moment where um, organized crime uh, and corruption were rife within the city. Um, this city was so broke uh, that they didn't have any money to uh, collect the garbage. So the garbage was just piling up and collected in the streets. And uh, Albania was the poorest country in Europe. Uh, so uh, he gets elected. He sees the treasury is empty. He's trying to figure out what to do. And he finds that there is like this small amount of funding that was appropriated by the European Union for historic preservation. And so um, he takes that funding and uh, he starts a project to uh, paint the buildings uh, in the downtown with uh, vibrant designs. He was an artist by tra training, he was a painter. And so um, these were some of his designs. He, he um, drew them and sketched them himself and then had them painted. Um, and he had them painted on public buildings, private buildings, it didn't matter. Now he would be the first to agree that this isn't necessarily great art, um, but that wasn't really the objective. Because shortly after he began this painting project, what he found um, was that littering stopped. People stopped littering in the streets. And then um, shopkeepers started to remove the metal grates from their windows. They said that the streets felt safer, even though there were no more police on the streets than before. And then crime actually did start to fall. And then um, something really surprising happened. People started to pay their taxes. <laughs> so <laughs> people had not paid the municipal taxes. Many people had not paid the municipal taxes in years, which is why um, the treasury was so empty. People started voluntarily um, you know, uh, paying their municipal taxes. And even some of the shopkeepers started to band together to refurbish um, the sidewalks. It was like they formed business improvement districts basically on their own to sort of band together to improve their neighborhoods. Um, the influx of revenue allowed Eddie Rama to do things, right? He was able to plant trees, he planted thousands of trees. He was able to clear the city parks of um, illegal kiosks that had been built um, during the 10 years since the fall of communism. Um, so imagine like all of our city parks would be just covered with like a crappy shopping mall. Um, and that's how it was. And so he was able to sort of clear those and restore them. And in the five years after, so five years after this began, um, what uh, what they found was that businesses in Toronto, the number of businesses in Toronto tripled, and the amount of tax revenue increased by a factor of six. Um, and 10 years after this painting project began, uh, Toronto was um, at the top of the Lonely Planet's uh, most desirable destinations. So it became, uh, went from a place that no one wanted to be to a place that people actually saw as a sort of a place to spend vacation. Um, so as I was looking at this, I found that there were other examples of this too. Um, some right in our own backyard here in New York. Uh, so uh, for example, these um, schools transformed by the nonprofit Public Color. And they've actually heard similar things that uh, graffiti starts to disappear in these um, painted schools. Um, that uh, kids say they feel safer in these buildings, and that um, uh, attendance, both teacher and student attendance, improves after public color transforms a school. Um, and uh, as I started to wonder why that might be the case, I uh, went back to the science side of things. What I found is um, research on color is spotty. Um, it's actually pretty patchy, but 
um, one really great study um, done of workplaces. And what they found is a study of nearly a thousand workers in four different countries, pretty diverse countries, um, Saudi Arabia to Argentina to Sweden. And what they found is that people working in more colorful environments are more alert, more confident, more friendly, and more joyful than people working in drab spaces. So the color seems like it's just on the surface, but it actually has effects that go much deeper. And why would that be the case? Well, we can't know for sure, but some researchers do see a connection to our evolution. So our color vision evolved in part to help our ancestors find ripe fruit and young leaves um, in the canopies of the treetops. And um, color, more generally, has often been a sign of places that can support life. So if you look at an environment in nature that is lush and rich and colorful, it is often an indication of a place that can support and sustain life. Whereas when you look at a place that is um, drab and dull, usually that indicates a lack of water or a lack of sufficient light to be able to support life. Um, so in many ways, color is a sign of energy. It's a sign of life. And the same is true of our love of abundance, uh, which I mentioned earlier. So um, we evolved in a world where scarcity was dangerous, right? And so abundance often means survival. And so that's why one confetto, um, which is the singular of confetti, because you're wondering, um, one confetto might be something that you would just like pick off your shoe, right? But when you multiply it, it becomes a handful of one of the most joyful substances on earth. You can do this with so many different things. Um, when we multiply things, um, they often become more joyful. Uh, so, for example, uh, this is work by um, Emmanuel Moreau, um, who's an architect uh, who designed this nursing home. And this is uh, the place where uh, families meet with their loved ones um, who are residents in this facility. And what they have found at this nursing home is that um, people linger longer. Families spend more time with their loved ones than they did before. Um, so something happens when we change the space, we change the behavior of the people in it. And this, some of these aesthetics of joy, some of these effects have even been traced to specific parts of the brain. So, for example, um, our love of round things. When neuroscientists put people into fMRI machines and they show them pictures of angular objects and round ones, what they find is that part of the brain called the amygdala, associated with unconscious fear and anxiety, lights up when we look at the angular objects, but not when we look at the round ones. They think that um, because many angular objects in nature are dangerous to us, we evolved this unconscious sense of caution around these shapes that stays with us to this day. And this is really how a lot of these things evolve, right? Um, if we have sort of hardwired uh, preferences, it usually has to do with the fact that the environment was so constant over the time that we were evolving um, that uh, it sort of etched this preference into us. Curves on the other hand, set us at ease, right? So there's no reason to be on that same level of alert. And you can see this in the newly redesigned Sandy Hook School Building. Um, so after the mass shooting there in 2012, the architects, the Gauls, Pulse partners knew that they needed to create a building that felt safe, right? And they had tons of new safety standards that they had to incorporate into this building. And it really could have resembled a fortress by the time they were done with it. Um, but 
they decided they wanted to make it feel joyful. So they filled the building with curves. So there are waves that run the length of the building. There are these squiggly canopies over the entryways. And the whole building actually bends toward the entrance in a welcoming gesture. And this is also a safety feature. Um, so when you have a straight building, you can't see what's happening along the spine of the building. But when you build in a curve, the administrators um, and the arts and music teachers, which are situated on both ends of the building, are always present, or very frequently present in those spaces, can keep an eye on what's happening across the full length of the building. Um, so curves are often practical value, um, as well as sort of seeming joyful. I think at root, if there's one thing that I hope to convey with this work, it's this idea that joy is not extraneous, it's essential. That we're often taught that it's a thing that can wait for the end, that it's something that goes on as decoration, right? That color, that curves, that all of these things are things that we do if we have enough budget left over, um, if we, uh, if, you know, if there's time. Um, and in fact, the joy is a part of our well-being. It's a signal um, that connects us to the things that can help us thrive um, and the environments and the places that can help us thrive. And so finding joy is, it's not enough. It's not optional. We're wired to seek it. When we don't have that, something um, vital is missing. So I'm going to, we're going to do a little breakout, um, a little reflection. I'm going to leave you with these questions. Um, Sorry, they're behind me. I know I keep gesturing there, but that's what I can see. Um, so you have them in both places. Uh, so um, what are the places, people, things, and activities that bring you joy? Um, and to what extent do you make these a priority in your life? And um, this is an exercise I do in a lot of my workshops um, around uh, thinking through, these are really like the building blocks of joy in your life. Um, and they can point you toward sort of more tangible things that you might bring in. And they don't have to be current in your life. It can be something that you love doing as a child, for example, um, or something you always wanted to try but you never got to do. Um, so uh, we'll take about 12 to 15 minutes to talk through those, and then we'll meet back. Okay. I'm curious what you noticed um, or if anything surprised you about uh, those conversations. And if anyone wants to share, no, no, not mandatory, but oh, great. Sure, I was going to say, we all were smiling a lot more after we were talking about joy. Nice. Interesting. So the, just reflecting on it just sort of brought the feelings out. Nice. Cool. Any, anyone else have something to share? I was going to say the same thing, talking about joy, just breaking through joy and getting like, so excited. And, yeah. Ah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> In what way? Whatever the situation is, if we ask people and why is the thing like the first thing they put behind not the same person, but it will connect you with one So it's a form of common ground. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. So I found that like the reaction was the same, but the cause of the joy was very different. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. 
I think that's one of the reasons why, for me, like, I, I always think it's interesting there are these scientists out there who are, like, trying to reduce the idea of beauty or, like, joy or whatever to, like, a formula. And I'm like, it's not one thing, you know? It, that's why they're, in, in my schema, there are 10, right? Because there are different things for each of us, and we find it in different ways. Um, so, yeah, it is more like a palette. Uh, cool. Any, anyone else want to share? Yeah. I'll say that we did mention, well, I mentioned, like, the negative experience I had, but then we reverted right back to, like, okay, this is not your work on this, I'm hmm. feeling okay, and I can make changes to, like, what is in the nature of the Cool. Huh. Great. So there's, like, a way to find a way back to the yeah. joy. Hmm. Yeah, cool. Any others? All right. Well, so where I wanted to leave you um, was with five uh, specific things. Um, so, uh, get it if you want. <laughs> um, it's play. It's all good. <laughs> um, so, uh, so in my book, it's sort of a mix of you know some of the science behind this stuff, and then also a lot of practical things you can do. Um, so these are just a few things uh, that I wanted to leave you with. So the first is add a pop of color, um, and there are lots of to do this and it doesn't have to be big um, so for me it's painting my front door um, in a bright color um, it could be at your office um, it could be just like a little um, something but nails um, is another way to do it your shoes um, there's all sorts of ways to add like a small pop of color and I think it's really interesting how you know it, it, even one small pop of color in uh, you know, a dull space, like if you happen to work in an office where you don't have control over your surroundings, that can sort of increase the sense of, you know, lightness um, in a space. So your mug um, that sits on your desk, like there are lots of ways to do that. Um, and research does show that uh, when we have bright color around us, um, like some of the physiological measures of alertness and um, arousal are sort of increased. Um, so choosing, it doesn't matter what color you choose, you can be any color you like, um, as long as it's a bright um, and a saturated version of that color. Bring the outdoors in. So I talked about freedom and that sense of joy that we get in open space and in nature. Um, pretty much, uh, there's just like this, every day it seems, there's a new study on the way that nature affects our emotions and our well-being. Um, that it decreases stress, that it, it enables our um, our attention to be restored. Uh, so when we are concentrating on things for a long time, our ability to focus goes down over time. When we go out into nature, that sort of rises back up again. So it's one of the few things that actually uh, is proven to restore our ability to concentrate and pay attention. Um, in some studies, uh, just bringing a few houseplants into a windowless space uh, reduces blood pressure, and it actually also makes people behave more generously toward others. Um, so there's all sorts of interesting research on the effects of nature. So um, bringing in plants is obviously the easiest, simplest way to do this, um, but you can also do it uh, in other ways. Um, you can uh, play bird song um, or other nature sounds. That's another way to do this. And one of the reasons why that works, now if you are ever out in nature and you hear a perfectly silent space, usually it's because the birds have fled, because a storm is coming or something. Um, so we listen to the cues of the space around us to tell us whether a place is safe. And, uh, and so um, sounds of nature can create a sense of joy. You can do it with scents as well. 
Um, so there are lots of ways to bring that um, sense of the outdoors in. Get some air. So uh, I don't know if anyone else um, was like a tree climber as a kid. I was a huge tree climber. I used to like to go up on my roof um, if anyone had a tree house as a kid. Um, and these places sometimes make us feel like we get a sense of perspective, um, like our problems seem further away. And that's a real effect. Um, so when we move upward in space, research shows that it helps us zoom out um, but we see things in a more big picture way. We have a more conceptual view of things as opposed to getting bogged down in the details. So whether you're at work and you're stuck in the weeds on a project or whether you are sort of uh, turning a problem over in your mind, um, getting a little bit of uh, elevation or air, um, it may work even just to, like look up at the clouds just to sort of uh, broaden your focus. Make space for play. Uh, so... I think that's one of the first things that we start to give up as adults. Um, and we turn a lot of things that could be playful into work, right? So exercise often is something that turns into work. Kids don't need to go work out because they're running around all the time, right? Um, so there are lots of ways to sort of build play into your daily routines. I like to keep um, things that are playful around me. Um, so one of the things that uh, my husband and I do, we keep an aerobee. Does anyone know what an aerobee is? It's like a frisbee, but looks like a ring. Anyway, maybe you had one with a kid. Anyway, it's, it's keep a frisbee. Um, that might be the easier way to say it, but it's just lighter. Um, we keep one in our car, um, and that's something that, you know, if we have time to kill somewhere, um, it's just like something we can do. Um, or keep a ball under your desk. Um, I have know someone who hula hoops while she watches TV. Um, it's difficult in a New York apartment, but possible. Uh, so um, keeping things that are playful around and rediscovering what um, feels like play to you. Uh, can be uh, really important uh, to sort of facilitating creativity uh, and a sense of joy in everyday life. And the last one is to celebrate the little things. So research shows that when we share our joy with others, um, it increases the sense of joy that we feel. And um, I think this is worth going into a little bit more detail on. So there are um, four, like there are two spectrums of how we can react to other people's um, like good news, to when something good happens. Uh, so there's active, um, so we like notice it, we talk about it. There's passive, we kind of ignore it, um, or we kind of brush it off, and we don't pay a lot of attention to it. Um, and then there's um, there's what did I just say? Active and passive and constructive and destructive, right? So constructive is, um, you know, you, you uh, build on that um, achievement. You get excited about it. Um, destructive is like, you know, oh, great, look at you. You're so great with your promotion, you know? So, <laughs> so, uh, so obviously, hopefully, no one does that. Um, but uh, when you are active and constructive together, active, constructive in your celebrations um, with other people, in these small moments, it tends to deepen relationships. And research shows that marital satisfaction is higher when couples um, celebrate each other's even little wins um, in active, constructive ways. So that's a really simple thing that you can do on a daily basis, is when others come to you, celebrate in active, constructive ways. Um, and carving out space for celebration in the everyday is, um, I think so important because we now do a lot of our celebration um, via, you know, text messages with emojis attached. So sort of just <laughs> taking it one step further um, is a way to sort of amplify our collective joy. Um, I'll uh, just leave you with this thought, um, which is that 
this is from the Irish philosopher John O'Donoghue, and he says that everyone is involved, whether they like it or not, in the construction of their world. And from that perspective, each of us is an artist. And I think, um, you know, when I first started this project, it was for designers. You know, it was a thing to help designers address some of those sort of bigger issues with the built environment. Um, but as I got into it, what I realized is that I think a lot of us have been taught to see our surroundings as something that um, is indicative of uh, good taste or um, status or um, it's something to please other people uh, or sort of convey, um, you know, how, I don't know, how smart or savvy we are to other people. But the, at the root of it, what the function of our surroundings should be is to make us feel good um, and to uh, sort of facilitate our well-being. And from that perspective, each of us has some sphere of influence where we can influence other people, where we can influence ourselves and uh, and create joy. Um, and whether that is what we wear, whether that is our home, whether that's something we host, whether that's our work, um, we all have a sphere of influence where we can bring this about. And what the ultimate guide for that is, is just our senses and our emotions. Um, so that is really all you need to, be, to create something that feels joyful. Uh, so you have it. Uh, and I hope that you'll use it. Um, so uh, here's where you can find me. Um, I am on Instagram at Aesthetics of Joy, uh, and I would love to see you there and hear from you there. Um, I do answer uh, all sorts of messages that way um, on Twitter at uh, Ingrid Patel, and I have a, a monthly newsletter called The Joy Letter, um, which goes out, and it's one topic um, per month. Uh, the next one is color, and we look at things like magic and laughter and share research, um, but also sort of concrete uh, tips as well. Um, and uh, my book, Joyful. Um, so, yeah, uh, thank you, and I'd love to answer your questions. Maybe I'll come and moderate so we all have, you know, one person holds up the magic smiley ball at a time. So, anybody want to kick us off? It's not I've got a question. Sorry, Bob. Great. Um, you touched a little bit on public art, on an art yeah. person. Um, how, what impact does public art have on a larger community? And maybe talk a little bit about how even our surroundings, when we got back from Paris, and mm -hmm. I was like, everything is so beautiful. And we got off the train in New York, and I was like, oh god, everything's so like, <laughs> yeah. Talk about the role of public art yeah. in, in sort of our collective society and how we can be happy. Yeah. So there was a debate a while back, actually, in the New York Times about um, the role of public art. And one of the questions was, like, historically, public art has been about monuments. It's been about, like, commemorating historical events. Um, and it's very serious, right? Um, and over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years in New York, there's been this wave of, like, very playful public art, interactive installations, or things that are just silly, like giant Hello Kitties up and down Park Avenue, or, like, things that aren't really bad at all, right, that aren't serious, that are purely for joy. And there's sort of a question, like, is can public art be purely for joy? And I actually think that's its highest function, right? When it calls people together in an experience of joy, that is, it, it rebalances the city 
um, in a really important way. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, street art is becoming so popular is because it's a really important, vibrant corrective to what is hap what we have done to the built environment. We've taken, we've stripped all the color, we've stripped all the joy out of the built environment. And public art, I think, can be a really powerful way of putting joy back into it. I think the other thing is that it also communicates our values. So when we put something really big into the city that is purely joyful, that is playful, um, it communicates that joy is okay, um, that it's okay for adults and kids um, to experience, and it sort of starts to break down that bias, that judgment that we have around joy um, by honoring it. So, yeah. Oh, I don't know. You, oh, sorry. I have, which was... In your research, did you find that there was a correlation between the use of color and social movements, like peace movement of the 60s or black movement for that community? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that joy is often associated with activism in various forms. Uh, so song, song and dance, like movement, um, those are often associated. Um, the pride movement is a great example, right, of color being used to sort of disarm um, in, in many ways, um, the sort of adoption of the rainbow uh, is, I think, a really ingenious and important symbol. Um, and I think that you see in a lot of cultures, um, one of the tools of repression is the repression of signs of joy, right? Um, and music in particular, because I think music, um, I didn't really get into this in, in here, but I talk a lot about in the book, um, that music has uh, very unique effects um, on groups of people. And one of the things that music and dance can do is that they synchronize um, brain waves, they synchronize heart rates, they synchronize patterns of behavior, and they actually increase a sense of cooperation and a cohesiveness of a group, right? So that I think that's one of the reasons that music and song, and chanting are often they're they're associated with celebrations and parades and with protests in equal measure because they have this incredibly uh, powerful way of, of creating cohesion. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. So so Bill was saying that he came back to New York and felt like. It yeah. was very kind of drab, but I feel the opposite when I'm in New York. Mm -hmm. Midtown is very calm and happy. Yeah. So is that because I'm weird or am I happy? Yeah, that's a great like, question. Like Midtown the grid, it's very symmetrical. Yeah. Downtown, I have a lot of anxiety. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> um, so there are. How do you feel about roundabouts? Yeah. No, not yeah. <laughs> So. Um, that, I mean, great question. I think um, people, we all vary in, the again, the types of joy that we find ourselves most drawn to. And I think often, like, city dwellers really thrive on, like, higher degrees of stimulation and also, like, um, you know, the joy of, like, surprise. When you live in a city, like, you never know what's coming. Um, so I think there are sort of different, like, wherever you find yourself, there are ways to find joy in that environment. Um, and you may find that you, it, that also changes over time. You know, so you uh, probably meet many people, um, if you're in New York, you meet many people, like, left the city, and they're like, they come back, and they're like, ah! <laughs> I can't do that anymore, you know? Um, so some of that has to do with where you are in your life. Um, I do think that there are fundamentally things that, um, like the scale at Midtown is, uh, 
just like there are things that are great about it, right? Because you get this feeling of transcendence, this elevation and this verticality and this sense of awe. Um, but I think it's not a fundamentally human scale and that is challenging over long periods of time. Um, so I'm curious, like if you notice over time, like any, any sort of, I don't know how it affects you or like, um, the other thing is nature, like the absence of nature in that environment. I mean, New York is pretty great about sort of integrating it in lots of different places, but I do think that, yeah, that that absence of nature, you often don't notice it until you get it, yeah. if that makes sense. Like you get out into nature and you're like, whoa, I feel really good in here. Yeah. Um, but you don't, you know, you're not noticing it on a daily basis. So, yeah. So I think there are things that are probably like just – depends on, you know, your own personality and your own sort of um, makeup, but there probably are universal things under there as well. Does that make sense? Okay. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Um, yeah, so I think um, obviously my work focuses very much on uh, the tangible. I'm a designer, that's sort of where I focus. Um, I think there's a whole piece of it that has to do with social connection, right? And we find a lot of joy, but also a lot of angst in social connection. Um, but, you know, research increasingly shows that when we do not have social connection, even if we don't feel particularly lonely, that it's really bad for our health. The equivalent of smoking, I think, 15 cigarettes a day um, is how the former Surgeon General put it. Um, so... Uh, absolutely, like a sense of trust, a sense of uh, connection to other people is vital for our well-being. Um, and I think that like my focus is really on how we enhance that. You know, so how do we use the environment to enhance that? Because there are ways that the environment pulls us apart and there are ways that the environment brings us together. How do we actually use the environment uh, to do the, the to do the bringing us together? Oh my God! It's a really how much more time do we have? <laughs> this is a huge question, and I think that um, from a science perspective, I think we're just starting to understand it. I think um, my observation would be uh, that we are moving to a dematerialized place. Like that is what. Um, design has, you know, moved us toward like a place where we really interact. Um, we're interacting more and more with virtual things and less and less with physical things. So even just money, like if you think about money, you used to pay with cash. Now more and more, your money moves around in space, and you don't even like see it or feel it. So we are sort of losing these um, concrete attachments to the world. Um, and I think there's a real loss to that because our sensory system is set up to interact with things in physical space um, and people in physical space. And so when we lose the cues of the facial expressions, the cues of um, the, you know, like our fingers were, 
our fingers are like amazingly sensitive and they're in our hands and they're not designed to just like scroll and tap. And so my hope is that we will start to move like that. I'm not so excited about VR mostly because I get really motion sick. So I, that technology is like not awesome for me, but I'm really excited about possibilities of AR and like technologies that actually start to move interfaces back into the physical world. Because I think the more we can start interacting again with the physical world, the better off we'll be. Um, I think that like, I mean, there's, there's a whole other piece of it, which is that we are designing technology to be specifically addictive, that is sort of uh, tapping into some of these same hardwired impulses and patterns, but not doing it, um, doing it to just increase the engagement. Um, and that is inherently, that, that doesn't actually serve any of the purposes that these uh, innate mechanisms were designed to serve, so, or evolved to serve, I shouldn't say designed. Um, but, uh, so I think to the question of like how are you like what is, how does that influence our like young people's ability to live a joyful life? I think it's the jury's out, but it doesn't look good. But certainly by my own like you know certain like personal experience, when we get off the devices, usually joy goes up and opportunities for joy increase. So yeah. What so you created or you made this book? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's interesting because so while I was working on this, I was working at IDEO, and so like a lot of the things that I did there are not things that I can talk about publicly. So that's always sort of a challenging um, thing. I think um, for me. You know, some of the things that I've done there were actually just fun provocations. So um, they revolve around, like, you know, one of the projects I did there was about um, redesigning Monday um, and looking at how we could actually sort of uh, disrupt a lot of the most painful moments of a, of a Monday. So, uh, for example, an alarm clock that wakes you up with laughter. Um, as a way to just sort of like start your day with, you know, if emotions are contagious and it's child's laughter, it's not like creepy weird laughter, it's like, <laughs> it's like a cute baby laughing. Um, or um, taking like, you know, we designed this conceptual device that I still want to find a way to make real, but it is engineeringly, engin the engineering is a little challenging, but um, it's a device that, uh, so one of the, I think, worst things about Monday is that you go from all this space and openness on the weekends to sort of being ruled by your calendar and all these beeping notifications. Um, so we designed this, cal this calendar notification device um, that just sends up a bubble every time you have a meeting. Um, so just like sort of gently lets you know. Um, and it brings this like sense of joy into um, and these aesthetics of joy into the office space. Um, so yeah, I mean right now my work is focused on uh, actually bringing this back into product. Um, and in particular, focusing on uh, some that's one thing that I'm really passionate about, which is lighting and uh, looking at how we um, change our relationship to the like, fluorescent things that are in our space. So. Do you think you'll continue to work on design, or do you think you'll continue to 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because like sometimes I find myself in a workshop or like I get feedback and people are applying these ideas to their life and I feel like, and, and you know, this book often lives in the self-help section, which is really interesting like because, you know, that wasn't sort of where I set out to be. Um, I think it's always both and I think it's always a dialogue. Um, so to me, like the, the premise of the question is that I'd have to choose um, and um, I reject the choice, I guess, because I feel like it sort of goes back to this idea that they have to be separate. And to me, like the work that the, the next 10 years for me is all about bringing these two areas closer together and all about bridging this gap between the, the, our surroundings and our mental health, starting to close that. So whether that is in... You know, I'll continue to write and do research for sure, um, but uh, I hope that there'll be product as well um, that starts to bridge that gap in a tangible way. Yeah. One more question back here. Um, so, Yes. So how do you like yes. those Great question. Um, okay. So uh, I think that the relationship between joy and happiness is this. That um, we think about happiness as this durable thing that we can find and once we have it, we just have it, right? Um, but that's not how happiness actually works, right? We're, it'll never be like the perfect happiness. Um, what really happens is that we have moments of joy that unlock other things in our lives. So when we focus on joy and we focus less on trying to be happy, um, all of those things that I talked about at the beginning of the presentation start to happen. We're more productive. We're more um, connected to other people. Uh, so I think that joy starts to create these ripple effects. Um, and when you're not focusing on it, happiness starts to find you. Um, and so I don't think that is the only path to happiness, and I don't think that is the only source of happiness. I think, you know, we also need to do things that cultivate meaning in our lives. We also need to make sure we're tending to our relationships, the good and the bad, you know, the hard side of relationships as well. Therapy, like meditation, those things are also really useful. So I don't think it's the only thing, but I do think that it is one much overlooked path um, toward happiness, um, which is why the title is what it is. Um, the question about things that are sort of maladaptive, right? Um, I think that the challenge that, you know, we have these impulses, we have created a world that hyper-stimulates them. So it's the same as with the technology um, as with sugar and fat, right? We've created things that are like so, um, that, you know, are so joyful to sort of, enjoy, they're so pleasurable that it's hard to resist them. And I think the challenge is actually to use the aesthetics of joy to sort of help us um, work toward the things that are good. So it's not to say that, like, everything that you find joyful today is going to be good for you. That is definitely not the case. Um, but, for example, if you're trying to eat healthier, rather than just, like, forcing yourself to eat healthy, I think the question would be, like, how do you bring more of a sense of joy into that. Um, and that might be through, you know, you're seeing it online all the time now on Instagram. People are making these incredibly gorgeous, healthy foods that are colored with like natural foods and they're making 
healthy eating really vibrant um, and flavorful as well, right? So I think it's about using, like, candy manufacturers have been using these techniques for years to make candy like the most joyful thing, which is why you walk into Dylan's candy bar and you cannot resist it, right? So how do we use the same techniques, um, the same breakdown, the same tools, and apply that to the things that we want to achieve? That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.